We all have things that we're good at and that we like to do. We've all had those jobs where we can pinpoint those things that we either don't like or we aren't good at. These are things that are personal and to some degree within your control, or at least not defined by others. One of the keys to developing a fulfilling career is to be able to steer your career towards things that you like and that you're good at. In part two of five of our series on building your career plan, I'll talk about how to identify your strengths and the things that you love to do as the internal drivers of building a career plan based on the concept of Ikigai. Hi everyone, and welcome to the Progress Over Perfection Coaching Podcast. My name is Patrick Dedrick. I'm the founder of Progress Over Perfection Coaching and the host of the show, and I want to thank you for listening in. Progress Over Perfection Coaching is a podcast focused on career management and development by offering insight on how to build an intentionally balanced and purpose-filled career. As I mentioned, this is part two of a five-part series detailing how to build a career plan. And if you found yourself here wondering what this podcast is all about, I invite you to take a step back and check out our first episode. In our last episode, I went into detail about the idea of ikigai, or a purpose in life, essentially the idea that there's something that we're all meant to do. And by meant to do, through the lens of a career, this is more meant to mean that there is something that each of us is drawn to, that comes easy to us, that we find meaning in, and that we enjoy. This culmination of things can be thought of as our career ikigai. This idea is centered or essential to the kinds of career plans that I'm referring to when I say that you can achieve career success. And I can't stress this enough, but these kinds of plans are not meant to be static. They aren't the kind of plans that you slave away at to be perfect and then never change before you begin your career journey. I do believe that truly effective career plans do require significant investment of your time and energy to build, and they should also change and evolve as you grow and change yourself. They'll take work to get started, but if done correctly, can be fairly easily tweaked and adjusted if needed as you course correct through your career. Ultimately, the goal is to make progress and not strive for perfection. When I say that you're going to change and grow, this could look different for each person. As you go through your life and are introduced to new things, your circumstances might change and your perspectives and worldviews may shift. The degree to which your life changes and the impact that those changes can have on your career plan will vary and only you can determine how your career plan will need to evolve to serve your needs. But that's all the more reason to do the work up front, to build a solid understanding of what makes up your career plan. Frankly, this is one of the things that I love most about the Ikigai model. It's very modular, and it's structured in a way that can make it very easy to tweak and shift over time without having to go back to the drawing board and start from scratch. To illustrate what I mean, here's an example. Maybe you were starting your career and you were single and you love jobs that required frequent travel that let you see new things and visit new places. However, maybe after you met someone and settled down with a family, you no longer want frequent travel. You'd rather find a job that keeps you in one place close to home so you can be around and spend time with your family. Now, if you have the kind of career map that I'll talk about how to make, then this shift in what you want out of career, your career doesn't mean that you have to start over from scratch. If nothing else has changed about your interests and circumstances, then odds are you can plug in play everything else about your career map, less the desire to travel. And it should be pretty straightforward to rescope your plans. However, if you had a more rigid career plan, then you could see this change in priorities as entirely disruptive and feel trapped between choosing your career and your family. Between the two career plan options, I know which one I would prefer. 
Like I mentioned in the last episode, there are four dimensions of Ikigai through which to frame your career map. What you're good at, what you love, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. In the last episode, I talked about the intersections of each of these dimensions and what each of those intersections might look like in terms of a stop on your career plan. In this episode, I'm going to take a closer look at the intrinsic or internally defined dimensions of what you're good at and what you love. Now, because these dimensions are internally derived, they'll start with you and you have some control over them. I'm also going to talk about how you can get a little extra mileage out of these. I say this because you'll obviously have preferences to things that you like and have some understanding of what you're good at. Conversely, you'll have things that you decidedly do not enjoy and things that you know you're not good at. It's almost as important to understand those opposites as your preferences and strengths, as it will help steer you away from career opportunities that may not contribute to your end goal. So with that, let's dig in. So I'll start with what you're good at, which can also be thought of as your strengths. One of my favorite ways to get at strengths is to utilize personality tests. For whatever reason, I've been fascinated by them for the better part of 20 years, And the idea of answering a series of questions, I could be told what I'm good at and what my preferences are and what gives me energy. And usually with some degree of accuracy upon some self-reflection. The other key aspect of many of these kinds of tests that I found particularly, particularly useful was that they typically went into some detail about my weaknesses. By the end of one of these tests, I would have some idea of what this test thought that I was inclined towards, that I was proficient at, and also a list of things or behaviors that and activities that I was not good at. There are a couple of different schools of thought when it comes to how to approach strengths and weaknesses. The first school of thought, which I've known to be more traditional, is that once one understands their weaknesses, they should focus their attention on those weaknesses. They should spend their energy on turning those weaknesses into strengths in the hopes of being a more well-rounded individual. This is countered more recently, at least to my knowledge, by the idea that one should not focus energy on developing their weaknesses, but instead redouble their effort on their strengths. The thought is that you should not spend energy on trying to get good at something that you may not have an inclination towards, as it's a less efficient use of your time. After all, if you aren't good at something, think of how much longer it would take to get yourself up to a level where it becomes a highlight for you. Instead, the advice in this school of thought is that you should spend your energy and focus on building upon your strengths. Lean into them and play to them so that you can stand out even more in those areas while either avoiding your weaknesses or addressing them through the skills and strengths of others in cases where you can be a part of a team or a larger group. Now, I won't go too much into the pros and cons of each of those philosophies other than that my personal approach tends to be somewhat of a hybrid. Again, from the Ikigai standpoint, your dream job or your career calling should allow you to accentuate your strengths. And to that end, I agree with the latter approach of emphasizing what you're good at and looking for roles or opportunities that allow you to play into your strengths. However, I also acknowledge that there may be some stops on your career plan that may require a skill that's been identified as a weakness. At that point, there are a couple of options. You could try and find another route for your career plan which again is not a bad thing and you should always keep an eye on your career plan to make sure that you do make changes as needed or you can try to address the weakness should you go the route of addressing the weakness i suggest that you look carefully at the weakness and assess whether it's a weakness because you're not good at it and it's something that is directly opposed to your strengths for example if your strength is operational execution that requires tactical precision in making sure that day-to-day activities are performed with excellence then a direct weakness might be strategic planning that requires you to step away from the immediate concerns 
of today and shift focus to what needs to be done to set up success for tomorrow. In the end, the watch out is that your existing strengths should not suffer at the expense of developing your weaknesses. My final thought on strengths and weaknesses and where to spend your energy comes down to a distinction between a weakness that might be a true weakness that's due to your own personality and preferred ways of thinking or acting and a weakness that's more related to a lack of experience or exposure. An example of the former, a, a true weakness might be that you aren't good with numbers. For whatever reason, they just don't seem to click for you, and you find working with them to be draining. In that case, you might want to rethink your career plan if it involves being a certified public accountant, as the amount of energy you'd need to expend to reach a passable level experience would be significant not to mention the amount of continued energy you would need to spend to help keep you progressing in that field to turn your weaknesses, weakness for numbers into a strength. That's somewhat of a basic and overly straightforward example, but hopefully gets to the point. An example of the latter kind of weakness is from a lack of experience. It's not that you are necessarily not good at something, but you just haven't been put in situations to expose you to it. The previous example of tactical versus strategic thinking falls into this category. By the way, I do want to clarify that I'm not a huge fan of this distinction between tactical and strategic thinking for the purposes of limiting or pigeonholing experience. Of course, certain roles will have a focus which could tend towards near-term operations and long-range planning, but a role does not need to define those kind of experiences you can get while you're in it. You can look for opportunities to grow your acumen and broaden your horizons and scope. To that end, I believe that you can address a weakness from lack of experience through intentional effort and build those experiences into your career plan. But that's a much broader topic, and we'll go deeper in a future episode. I do want to spend some time on some of my favorite personality tests, though, that I've used in identifying my own strengths and weaknesses. Some are free and very accessible, while others do have some kind of paywall that can be a little more involved. Those you may not be able to jump into right now, but could potentially have access to throughout career opportunities, as some employers do invest in these kinds of tests. So I hope that you can use some of these to your benefit in in identifying your strengths, or perhaps confirming the strengths that you believe you already possess. So we'll start with the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator, or MBTI for short. It's possibly the most famous personality test right now and over the past 10 years, with countless social media articles, links, videos, and memes going into how you can apply your personality type in your life, whether for your career or relationships, or telling you which Game of Thrones character you'd most identify with. The test is based on the work of psychologist Carl Jung and was uh, devised by Catherine Briggs and Isabel Myers with the first formal publication in the 1940s. Today, the test is largely regarded as pop psychology at best, and there's a lot of critical scrutiny regarding the validity of the test and underlying psychological concepts. That being said, I still like to use this as a good intro into personality tests as it's easy to understand and accessible, and there are a lot of free options. I'll provide a link to a free version of the test that I like to use. It consists of about 64 questions that you're asked to provide an answer to based on how much you agree that it applies to you, ranging from strongly to agree to strongly disagree. The point of these tests is not to overthink any of the questions and go with your first instinct. Their total is 16 types according to the MBTI, consisting of four letters, with each letter representing an opposing quality pairs. The quality pairs are introvert or extrovert, or I or E, intuitive or sensing, N or S, feeling or thinking, F or T, and judging or perceiving, J or P. 
While these are set up as binary pairs, the results of your test places you somewhere on a spectrum between each of the two letter poles, with the higher the number, the more your personality tend towards that dimension. For example, if you were an I with a score of 50, then it would indicate that you were fairly introverted. However, if you were an I with a score of 5, then it would indicate that you walked the line between introversion and extroversion and could exhibit strengths in either, likely dependent on the situation you're in. The results of the test, depending on the version you take, can also provide you some ideas around careers or strengths that your personality type may be inclined towards. I ultimately see this test as a component of your own strengths evaluation and by no means the sole tool to be used in thinking about your strengths. Again, it's not necessarily a test that's grounded in rigorously tested methods and isn't taken too seriously. I'm likely a bit more biased in using it because this is my first foray into personality tests and I have since used other tests and experience to either shore up and validate my own results from the test or discount other aspects that I found to be less accurate. And for anyone curious, I'm an INFJ. I have been since the first time I took the test about 20 years ago and I've gotten the same result each time I take uh, or retake the test and I happen to do so every couple of years. So the next one we'll talk about is the Enneagram. Uh, and it's gained a lot, a lot of social media popularity recently. Uh, and so uh, it was devised in the 70s and 80s, and the test defines personality types and their connection to one another, with the test taker having one primary type and then a connection to another type that they revert to in times of security, and a different type that they revert to in times of stress. So it's not to say that some types are inherently good or bad, but each type is defined as having certain strengths and weaknesses. So one may draw on the strengths of a type that they're linked to in security while taking on the weaknesses of the type that they're linked to in times of stress. So similar to MBTI, the degree of popularity in social media for the test is almost directly linked to the scrutiny it receives in professional psychology or personality science circles, and it's largely, largely considered to be grounded in pseudoscience. In total, there are nine Enneagram types or Enneatypes, each with a number, one through nine, and a descriptor. In ascending order, the types are the reformer, the giver, the achiever, the individualist, the investigator, the loyalist, the enthusiast, the challenger, and the peacemaker. The test itself is similar to the MBTI in which there are between 50 and 100 questions that uh, you're to indicate if they're accurate or inaccurate based on how you perceive yourself on a sliding scale where you can either strongly agree or slightly agree and so on. There are a number of free resources online where you can take a test to give you your Enneagram type as well as a number of paid tests with a more robust breakdown of your results. This test has also gained some pretty solid footing in some business settings and I've personally been on a team where it's been used as a team building activity to learn more about each other and get an idea of how each individual on the team can help support or complement one another. Personally, I enjoyed this test as it seemed to add another layer of detail in, in the report out from my test, but I also took a paid version. As with the MBTI, I think it's important to keep in mind that if you do go this route to assess your own strengths, that you don't let it prescribe to you what you're good at or not. These tests should always be a reflection of you and not disposition you to a certain personality type. It's okay if you don't agree with the results or feel that they don't completely or accurately represent yourself. Again. I view these tests as a way to help me view myself from a perspective that I might not have otherwise considered and reinforce the assumptions I already had for myself. Again, for anyone curious, I'm an Enneagram type three or achiever uh, that gravitates to a type nine or peacemaker under stress and a type six or loyalist when secure. 
So the next test we'll talk about is the Clifton Strengths Assessment. Um, and it's a test that was created by Donald Clifton and administered through Gallup and was updated to a 2.0 version and is now used today by Tom Rath. Clifton was a psychologist that consulted with companies on how to use psychology to best select candidates for hire based on what the companies were looking for and the neat characteristics of each candidate. Today, his work lives on as one of the most well-known personality-based strengths-focused assessments, and it's used largely in professional or business environments. Unlike other tests that I like, uh, that I just talked about, the strengths assessment is not considered pseudoscience or pop psychology, and it's widely regarded as legitimate science. Further evidence by Clifton having been recognized by the American Psychological Association in 2002 with a Lifetime Achievement Award, and is considered the grandfather of positive psychology and the grandfather of strengths-based psychology. In total, there are 34 strengths identified as a part of this test. I won't list all 34 here, as I don't see much value in that, but I will say that each of the strengths is classified into four different themes, strategic thinking, relationship building, influencing, and executing. I'll provide a link to Gallup's page where there's a detailed description of each of the strengths in case you want to dive in. The idea behind the test is that you'll have a certain score or affinity for each of those strengths, and your personality will point to the top 10. That's not to say that these don't change over time or are contextually based. It just means that you're, you express yourself through 10 strengths more than others, and your top five, which is the main focus of the, your test results, may shift or shuffle with the others in your top 10. The results of the test also go into great detail on how you likely conduct yourself or how the strength manifests itself in your personality. But the analysis goes a step further and provides insight and advice on how to work with others that are that type and which strengths may either complement each other as well as be somewhat contentious. What also sets this test apart from the others that I mentioned is that there's no free version. There are a couple ways to get results for the test. You can purchase a StrengthsFinder 2.0 book, which includes a key to take an online test through Gallup, or you can find, and you can find that book online for about $20 if it's on sale. And I've actually also lucked out and found copies of the book at thrift stores for a couple bucks with an unused key for the test. So if you're looking to get this insight as affordably as possible, it might be worth a quick scouring of your local thrift store uh, uh, in the book sections, especially if you live around some larger businesses. As this test is a popular team building activity, and there's a chance some extra copies may find their way there for you to pick up for cheap. So the test key will get you access to the 100 or so question test and an analysis with your top five strengths. There's a much deeper analysis that goes into how you score on all 34 strengths that you can purchase directly through Gallup online, either as a standalone $50 test or a $40 upgrade if you've already completed the book key version of the test. Overall, the strengths-based personality assessment is one of my favorites, and I'd say that if you have an employer that will pay for you to do this, maybe even as a development opportunity or part of a, a team building exercise, you should absolutely take advantage. So I've taken the StrengthsFinder a few times and most recently my top five strengths are achiever, learner, responsibility, empathy, and individualization. All right, so in case you couldn't tell, I'm a pretty big fan of personality tests and I think they're fascinating and a great self-evaluation tool. There are a couple other tests that I go into some detail that I've taken and have thoughts on, but they're a bit harder to get access to as they're tucked behind a pretty significant paywall. If there is interest, I may go into detail on them in a future episode, but I'll leave the list of personality tests here for now with these three. Hopefully, this gives you some resources to go after to help you determine your own strengths. 
I'd suggest using the results from any of these tests, or if you've foregone any of this test using whatever list of strengths you have and you've made for yourself, and start to break those down into actions that a job may require of you. For example, if you've identified one of your strengths as being a learner, to borrow from the Clifton Strengths Assessment, then you could break that down into Ikigai strengths of personal or professional development, or a desire to gain new experiences. Having this kind of list of things you're good at uh, will help to more easily fill in your career map and also help to communicate your strengths to others. The last bit I wanted to mention about personality tests and how you should share or project results is related to how others may perceive them. The more commonly known personality tests are pretty well known and your company or, or prospective employer may use them heavily, which means that they can be a great way to convey a large amount of information about yourself in a very brief package like a four-letter MBTI type, or an Enneagram number, or a list of five strengths. The caution here is that depending on the audience and their level of familiarity with the tests and how they choose to interpret them, it could also work against you. So for example, if you're an INFP personality type on the MBTI, then you're introverted to some degree. Now, if you're interviewing for a job in sales and share your MBTI type and the interviewer is familiar with these tests, then they may see that you're introverted and decide that you aren't a good fit because the position they're looking for in this role needs to be outgoing and extroverted. So this may not happen in all cases, but it's a caution that a mentor of mine once provided and I feel is fair and a good thing to keep in mind. That being said, I do include some personality test results in a visual resume that I keep and I share with others when I network, but I'm careful to always walk people through the resume and to speak to the results and put them into context, so I own that part of the conversation. My final thought on strengths and where to get some context for your own come less from a test and more from feedback that you've gotten on the job. Whether it's annual rev reviews, 360 degree evaluations from peers, or from solicited feedback that you've gotten from mentors, Hearing how others perceive your strengths can be eye-opening, as you may view yourself in a very different light than others do. That's not to say that others' opinions are more valid than your own assessment of your strengths, but it's good to understand how others perceive you as well. For example, if you think that you're great at something like presenting to senior leaders, but when polling others, they, their feedback says the contrary, or that they've never heard you present, let alone to leadership, you should be aware and consider what you can do to either reassess your strengths or bridge the gaps in others' perceptions of your strengths. In this case, this might be finding opportunities to present in front of senior leaders. All right, so now I'm gonna shift from looking at what you're good at and focus on the other internally derived dimension of Ikigai, what you love to do. So this is a bit different from strengths and weaknesses as there aren't really tests out there to tell you what you like to do, and it doesn't much matter how others perceive what you like to do. This is solely based on your preferences. So the trick I found with this is that there are a couple of different lenses you can use when building this list. You can focus on a much broader range of activities that could be things that you love to do that are very specific, career-focused list of activities and responsibilities that make very clear sense as components of a profession. So I'd suggest starting by casting that wider net that looks to not just to professional likes and dislikes, but also hobbies and pastimes as sources of your list of things that you love. From the perspective of a hobby, you could draw on things that you like to do in your free time. So I just suggest that as you make sure to spend time to translate that list of hobbies into active components of those activities as they translate to a career, if they don't align one-to-one -one for what your career aspirations might be. 
For example, if you love to cook and your career aspiration is to be a chef that owns their own restaurant, then that's a pretty straightforward connection and you don't really need to do anything to alter the, for the purposes of your career plan. However, if you love to play video games online with others in your free time, but are working towards a career in sales, then you may need to do some additional work to put that love into a proper context. So maybe you love to play video games online because you're incredibly competitive and you get a rush from being the best. If you've reduced your love down to that specific competitiveness, then you have something you can work with for a career plan. And you can say that for your career map, you love competitive environments that allow you to shine through or allow your hard work to shine through. One way that I've heard these loves described in the book, First Break All the Rules, is to think of them as four-lane highways or energy givers. These are kind of things that you seem to have a limitless supply of energy to do, no matter how tired you are or how stretched thin you feel. You can always seem to find time and energy to squeeze in some of this activity. These are kinds of things that energize you, and you can always bring your A-game to. In this way, you can almost think of them as another way to think of a strength, and in some ways, there is some overlap. Oftentimes, these may be kind of the kinds of things that come naturally to you, and you may intentionally seek out projects or work to support your involvement with them. One love that I did want to specific call out that I think is really important for people to consider when thinking about their career plans, no matter what else they may love to do, is the degree to which they, that love uh, is actually doing tangible work. Going back to the example of wanting to become a chef, if you think you uh, love cooking, do you actually love the act of cooking or preparing food for others? Or do you love being the face of the food with your name on the building and would rather be a restaurateur that manages restaurants? The distinction may not be really clear if you haven't encountered this in your career, the split between doing work and managing work. But for myself, I've seen plenty of examples of where people have moved into managerial positions because they have exhibited skill in a specific area. And moving into management is the next logical step for the career. However, this doesn't necessarily align with what the individual may love to do or even what they're good at. A very personal example of this that I saw at a young age before I even started my career was with my dad. So he's a software engineer by trade and passion. So he loves writing code and the idea of putting uh, an idea into action and creatively finding new ways to solve a problem within a set of parameters. So he was really successful early in his career and quickly moved through the ranks to end up as a senior director of engineering at Intel. But as he moved up, he found that his work no longer consisted of actually writing code and solving tangible problems. His job was now to manage a team of software engineers and to solve the problems of his team and work through the internal politics of the workplace. By all accounts, his career moved in the direction that a lot of people would consider to be highly successful, but he ended up finding that he was no longer doing what he loved, and he ultimately left so that he could refocus his own career to do something that he did love. All this to say that almost as important as figuring out what you love to do is figuring out what you don't love to do. If you know that you don't love certain activities or aspects of certain job functions or industries, then it can go a long way to help you narrow your focus of where you want your career plan to take you. It may also seem somewhat counterintuitive, but it can also be a benefit to you to be upfront about these things that you do not love when speaking with others about potential career opportunities. You don't want to necessarily disqualify yourself from a role if it might involve doing something that you vocally do not love to do. But at the same time, you have to ask yourself why you would want a job that would put you in a situation that forces you to do things that you don't love to do. 
There's no part of the Ikigai career map reserved for things you don't love to do, but I'd strongly suggest that as you learn more about yourself and gain exposure to a broad range of jobs and roles, you start to take inventory of the things that you don't like, if for no other reason than to keep yourself honest and keep, keep you on track for your career plan. All right, so that was a lot about that was a lot in about does it for these two dimensions of Ikigai. So we went pretty deep into these intrinsic or internally derived aspects of how to think about your career plan and aspirations. So now that I've gone into what you love and what you're good at, I suggest that you take some time to inventory these things for yourself. Like with every aspect of the kind of career map we're building, this inventory will change for you over time. At least it likely will. It may not, and that's okay too. The important thing is for you to remain aware of your strengths and interests, monitor if they change, and assess whether or not they change how you want your career to go. In the next episode, I'll talk about the extrinsically derived aspects of Ikigai, what the world needs, and what you can be paid for. So these will have a very different feel from what we just talked about, as the emphasis will be less about looking inward to shape your career plan, but instead will be about understanding how the world around you will determine the pathways that you can use to forge your career map. So as always, if you have thoughts or questions about this episode or ideas you'd like to hear covered in future episodes, you can send your ideas or comments to me at patrick at prgscoach.com. And with that, I'll sign off with a certain type of perfection can only be realized through a limitless accumulation of the imperfect. Thanks again for listening in, and we'll talk more in our next episode.